You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. Everybody, how we doing? How's it going? Happy President's Day weekend. Long weekend. Surprisingly good weather for what we've been having or what was forecasted. So good to be with you guys. Um, if you've been with us, you know that we have been in this amazing series called The Miracles of Jesus. And we've been in here about a month and we're going to take a few more months Uh, looking specifically at different miracles of Jesus recorded in the Gospels. And each week we're going to study a miracle that Jesus performed all the way leading up to summertime. And there's actually 37 miracles, like big ones, so to speak, recorded in the Gospels. We're only going to look at about 16 just for time's sake. Um, So we prayed over, looked at, and tried to pull uh, 16 that we thought uh, the Lord would speak to us on Sunday mornings. And everything ranging from when Jesus turned water into wine to healing every kind of sickness and disease to walking on water to raising Lazarus from the dead. And the list goes on. There's incredible moments where Jesus interacted uh, with humanity. And really what it does, or why we're doing this series, is it's a window into the heart and the character of God. Through the person of Jesus, we get to see the heart of God the Father come out in very like, visual, practical ways. We don't have to guess I think people think, oh, we don't know who God is, and we don't know what he's like, and we don't know his his intentions for us. Well, actually, we do. Not only just because the Bible tells us what God's like, but we actually see the person of God in the person of Jesus. He's the exact representation of his Father. And so the way in which Jesus interacts with people and why he does certain things and when he does them is really important. And so in this series— We're going to look at that, and uh, it's, it's fun. I hope that you guys have gotten a lot out of it. I hope God's spoken to you so far, but without further ado, we're going to get into today's miracle, and so if you could join with me in opening your Bibles to Luke 6, 6 through 10. Luke 6, 6 through 10 is where we're going to read from. Uh, I myself am reading out of the New Living Translation. I'll have that translation on the screen. But the reason why Bibles you may see are around, uh, whether on the tables coming in or on the tables scattered, it's for you if you would like to just open up an actual physical Bible to Luke 6 to know where we're reading from. But let me go ahead and read our section of Scripture and then pray. Luke 6, 6 through 10 says this. On another Sabbath day, a man with a deformed right hand was in the synagogue while Jesus was teaching. The teachers of religious law and the Pharisees watched Jesus closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew their thoughts. He said to the man with the deformed hand, Come and stand in front of everyone. So the man came forward. Then Jesus said to his critics, I have a question for you. 
Does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath, or is it a day of doing evil? Is this a day to save life or destroy it? He looked around at them one by one, and he said to them, and he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand, and it was restored. At this, the enemies of Jesus were wild with rage, and they began discuss, to discuss what to do with him. Uh, this is our section this morning. Let's go ahead and pray over our time in it. God, we thank you for this wonderful series that you have us in here at Reality Honolulu. We thank you for the gift of your word that we have, all of these historical events recorded that actually happened in an actual place some 2,000 years ago. And God, we, we pray that we would be open to what your word is saying to us this morning. Not only learning more about the context, which is important, and what actually happened, but also, Holy Spirit, would you minister to each of us how this speaks to us? What does this mean for us at our jobs, with our kids, with our spouses, with our friends, in our family unit? How does this fit in? How does this speak to us? What does it mean for, for all of us in this room, and how might we become more like you today? So God, we're open to being refined, or we want to be. We want to be open to your encouragement, your conviction. We want to be more like Jesus after today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so when we read these miracles, or at least when we study them on Sunday mornings, each week we really try to view these in context. Anytime you read anything, context really matters, right? The older you get, you'll realize that. That's why if you just kind of pluck a few verses here or you pluck something out of context, obviously you're going to miss the meaning of it. You're going to get it wrong. You're going to jump to conclusions. And with the miracles specifically, you may not necessarily get a wrong interpretation or, or a really wrong interpretation, but you'll for sure miss the significance You'll just miss the potency of what Jesus did and when he did it, to whom he did it to. And today is, is one of those days. And a lot of the, the miracles are. Last week we honed in on why it was such a big deal that a Roman centurion came to a Jewish crowd and asked Jesus to heal his servant. It went into depths of like, well, Israel at the time was under Roman oppression. And so this was an oppressor asking an oppressed people for help. Like there's a lot of cultural, religious, social, economic, military significance of when Jesus healed this man in the way he did. Again, if you didn't care to look into any context, it probably wouldn't have the same potency. And so today is one of those days where Jesus... Right, even just the way this, uh, that Luke is describing the situation in the synagogue, got to figure out what that is, on the day it is, the Sabbath, very publicly Jesus is like pointing out, bringing this man in front of everyone. It's very public, it's very visual, and the timing and the place and the people really matter. And so we've got to know a few of those things. And so that's what we're going to do today. We've got to know what the Sabbath is. 
or else we'll have no idea why this is such a big deal and why they respond in verse 11 the way they did with wild rage. That should be a clue that you're like, I got to figure out why. But who are these Pharisees and teachers? Why are these teachers of religious law and Pharisees responding the way they did? All of that's really important and significant. So first is like, what is the Sabbath? For a lot of us, we might have an idea, but Sabbath, just generally, is a day set aside for rest and worship. If you want to dig a little deeper and see where this kind of is brought up in detail, Exodus 19 and 20, you can see it. But the Sabbath is meant to be a day of rest on the seventh day of a week, commanded by God to be kept as a holy day of rest as God restored creation. We see even himself in the creation story that God created everything, everything, literally, and on the seventh day, what did he do? He rested. And then throughout Scripture, we see this idea of a Sabbath rest. It's the idea, uh, it's where we get the word sabbatical. Taking a sabbatical is a longer period of rest from a certain job or vocation or, or thing that we're doing. But the practice of observing the Sabbath, you know, originates in Exodus 20, actually as a commandment that we are to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Again, we could spend weeks and weeks on what does the Sabbath mean for us now and how should we practice it and what should we look like and what's the timing but but here's the intended purpose and I don't think we need to get into the detail of the Sabbath to to understand this story and significance the intended purpose of the Sabbath set by God is to give rest for creation to recalibrate also it's to keep our work from being an idol. Which workaholics, like this is our society today. You work, 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 work. There's no rest and you get sick because you should have rested. And I mean, we know this well. Like it's important to just self-care and help. But God knows that we're not supposed to just endlessly work and endlessly move and endlessly do stuff that our bodies mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, need a day or a time or a certain time in the week where you just rest, recalibrate, remember the Lord, be still, be silent. I mean, it should be more than just one time a week. It should be something daily that we do that we don't make other things in our life more important than our time with with God as created being and our creator. But God, knowing his creation, set this day to remind us of the importance of him and who they were and to kind of recalibrate creation. So that's Sabbath is this day set apart to honor God, to rest, to worship, to not do any type of work, and so on. Again, Exodus 28 through 11, you can go read all about that. But So these teachers of the law and the Pharisees, who are they? Okay, we kind of get a little brief, like cliff notes of the Sabbath. Here's a cliff notes of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. So these were Jewish religious leaders of the day who held closely to Old Testament law and you could say were protectors of it at all costs. But what we'll see today 
is that they would hold so closely and they'd hold so tightly even so that they would over-interpret, over-add to what God had even put forward in a very legalistic, in a very religious way. Like legalism in the dictionary, picture the Pharisees. What we'll see today that not only do they hold closely, too closely, and too tightly to what the Old Testament said, not only would they misinterpret Jesus' actions— But many of these Pharisees and teachers of the law would miss God himself in the person of Jesus. Talking about missing the picture. Like blowing it. If there's anyone looking on the outside who would have seen Jesus and said, wait a second, I think this is the promised Messiah, the Son of God, who's been prophesied. I think it's him. There's anyone who should have gotten that. It was these guys. But they were so caught up with exactly when certain things that they thought exactly should have happened that they missed God completely. That idea is going to be important because I'm going to come back to application why I think we... I don't want to say, but we also have trouble with this. Hold that thought. Be ready for some application. But these teachers of the law and the Pharisees, along with others, would be the very ones who not only would like misinterpret Jesus' actions like they did today, but they would be the very ones who would end up accusing Jesus of blasphemy, that he claimed that he was God, and they were so upset about what Jesus did and his claims that they're the ones that brought Jesus to the Roman authorities that ultimately would put Jesus upon the cross. It was this kind of attitude, it was this kind of religious, pharisaical attitude that instead of seeing Jesus, who, what, he, what he was and who he was, that they accused him of blasphemy, of claiming to be God and claiming to be the Messiah. How dare he to the point where they put him in front of Roman authorities and Jesus was killed for this type of attitude. Over and over, we see Jesus and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees kind of going at it. Like throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, these guys are always on the scene and they're always looking at Jesus and they're always waiting for him to make a mistake so they can accuse him and blame him and get him out of the picture. They're threatened by Jesus. They don't know what's going on. They don't believe he, who he is. And so even in the story today, they're in the synagogue. They're watching and they're waiting. Right? Even our text today, it says that Verse 7, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees watched Jesus closely. Like, look at these guys, right? If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. Can you imagine this group following you through northern Israel if you're Jesus? You're like, ah, oh, the Pharisees again. Like they're just waiting to point out something. So there's always this give and take. There's always this interaction that Jesus has with this group. But what's happening—so why— What's happening here today and why it's significant is, again, got to set a little bit more context. So it's on the Sabbath. There's these teachers of the law, and they're in the synagogue. 
So again, the synagogue is the place of worship for the Jewish people. Um, Usually, there'd be one in every city that had more than 10 Jewish men in that city. A synagogue was created or built so that there'd be a place of worship for the Jewish people in every city. So, especially on a Sabbath day, right, many would come there to worship. Many were not working, right? And so this synagogue most likely was filled with Jewish people at the time. Even Jesus, being the rabbi and teacher that he was, was, happened to be teaching in this synagogue. And so... What's significant is that he heals this man with this withered hand on the Sabbath. Why this is a big deal, that Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath in the synagogue in front of the Pharisees, is because technically, if you were to hold too tightly to Old Testament law and not really understand the Sabbath's purpose, you would see what Jesus did as work, which in essence is breaking the Sabbath. Again, see how that's like a jump where you're like, wait a second, guys. There was this man with this withered hand, paralyzed, can't move it. Like his hand, it's not like modern day medicines. There's nothing. This is 2,000 years ago, ancient Israel. This man is like ruined for life. And Jesus supernaturally heals this man in front of them. And what do they do? Ah, I shouldn't have done it. Like, you're like, did you guys miss the whole point? You missed the entire thing. Jesus just healed a man and changed the course of the rest of his life. That's what you should be rejoicing in. What do they do? They're filled with wild rage. Like, do you see that? Why? Why did the Pharisees respond like this? Again, they were holding so strictly tight against this in their own interpretation What Jesus was doing was work. He was working on the Sabbath. He was breaking in the Sabbath. And so in their mind, this was the moment they had been waiting for. They caught him. (laughs) But what they actually had done was they had gotten it all wrong. In this situation, they were the ones whose heart had been shown. You see, the Sabbath, the day itself, the reason why God even created it Why it began was, it was for humanity. It was for creation. And what Jesus was constantly trying to do over and over again is to remind everyone that the Sabbath was created by God to serve man, not man to serve the Sabbath. And even early on in Mark's gospel, once again being ridiculed by the Pharisees for picking grain to eat on the Sabbath, Jesus famously said this, Mark 2, 27 through 28. He sets the stage. He said, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people, not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. So if you think of our our story today, you you look at that passage. If you can just stay on that passage, sorry. If you look at what Jesus said in Mark 2, what the Sabbath was intended for was it was for the needs of people. He said it was not so that people... 
people could just meet the requirements of the Sabbath. The story that we read today in Luke 6 is a very public and visual representation of this very thing. The Pharisees were all about the do's and don'ts. They were putting God in a box. They were putting God's kingdom in a box. In their mind, you can only do certain things on certain certain times regardless of how incredible those things were. And so what Jesus does in the synagogue very publicly is he says, no, the Sabbath is so that I could meet and be with my people. And what he does is he heals this man. He sees compassion, he sees his need, and because he's God, he heals this man. And so in a very public and visual representation, it shows us God's intention and God's heart for creation. It shows us God's character, that he loves us and he wants to be with us and he wants to care for us. So what does this mean for us? And this is, again, I want us to be open to these challenging questions. But in the same way that the Pharisees were putting up barriers, which they were, to impede the hand of God, to limit his working, because if Jesus had listened to them, what would have happened in our story today? That man would never have been healed. Maybe maybe the next day. But but if you think about it, if the Pharisees were putting barriers and boxes around when God could work and when God couldn't work and how he could work and where he could work. If Jesus had listened to them or if he had just done what the Pharisees wanted, this would have never happened. This man's life would have never been changed. He never would have been healed. Story wouldn't have happened. So in the same way the Pharisees were putting up barriers to impede the hand of God to limit his working, it's a hard question to ask, but in our own lives, Are there barriers or walls we put up to inhibit the work of God in our lives or in the lives of others around us? See how I just turned the mirror a little bit? We're like Pharisees, and you're like, "Ah, I think we might be them too. Because if we're we're honest with ourselves, how often do we pray to God and we're like, God, I need a new job, but... I need this sector, I need this pay, I need this timing. So if you could do all those things, I'm good with it. And then God comes back, how about this job? And you're like, that's not what I said. And God's like, that's not how it works. But all the time, I think we do this. If we're honest, we, we limit God perhaps. We think, ah, God can do this, but he can't do that. We are limiting All of a sudden, whether it's subtle or unconsciously, maybe it's it's that we don't pray about the thing we really want because we think, ah, God's not going to give me that. Why? I think you're limiting him. So so again, I I know it's a different context. And I know we're not in a synagogue, and I know we're not like teachers of the religious law. But if you look at what they were doing, is, is they were using their own interpretation and their own life experience, and they were trying to limit the hand of God working in the world. 
So for us, maybe it's a lack of faith, right? It might be a lack of faith that might limit God's work. Or maybe it's a lack of obedience. Uh Uh-oh. Right? Because maybe God's like, dude, I totally want to work in your life. I just, I'd love if you did this. And you're like, I want you to work, but I don't want to do that. What does that do? Well, then, that, again, that just is limiting what God wants to do. And in a weird way, I actually think we can miss out on moves of God. I've seen it because I've been a pastor for so long that, like, the Holy Spirit's working in a community and working in people's lives. And there's a handful of people that are like, what do you mean God's working? I don't see him anywhere. And you talk to him more, and you end up finding, oh, man, like, it's because you're just doing your own thing in life. Because you're not being obedient, and you're not trusting him, or you're not being faithful, or like, wait, there's all these things that God's doing. What do you mean you're missing it? And it comes down to ways in which we limit God. We put him in a box. And again, I think it, a lot of times we, we as a people, uh, not super old, but the, lo- the older I get, not only do I see it potentially in myself, but I see it in others, we love to be in control. We love it. We love our comfort. We love our timing. We love our control. And when any of those things get out of whack, that's when life starts to fall apart for us. When we don't feel like we're in control. When we, don't, when we feel uncomfortable. When we feel like things are, things are happening or things are not happening and I can't control it. That's when we really panic and stress out and worry and a myriad of other things. But again, I think... Our wanting to control our life, again, whether that's your daily schedule of when you schedule to do emails or not, I know this happens to so many of us. You schedule out your day, and like a random meeting comes in, and it ruins your day, and you're like, dude, my day is ruined. You're like, it's not. It's just your schedule that you set forward got changed. Again, I'm speaking to myself, because it's like, this happens to all of us. But right? Like, all of a sudden, but I think we can take that into our relationship with God, and we want to control the narrative, and we want to control how our life goes. We want to control the timing, and so then all of a sudden, our thoughts towards God and our prayers all end up on our terms. And in a nutshell, that is what the Pharisees were doing. Jesus is like, I'm, I can heal this hand's hand miraculously. They're like, nope, it's not on our timing. And he's like, oh, like, do you see, do you see where this has landed you? So what I want to do is I do want us to be challenged. And perhaps it's, a, it's, it's encouraging us to just maybe be more open and more surrendered and more trusting of God. And perhaps today would be a time where I want you to be encouraged To pray those prayers and ask God those things and believe he can do those things. Because I think many of us have said, God, you can't. Or God, you won't. I want to encourage us. I I hope that the miracles would, would embolden our faith. I hope it would give us more trust. I hope we could see the person of Jesus. And that instead of us just trying to control the narrative, we can say, God, your narrative is better than mine. Your ways are higher than our ways. Your ways are better than my ways. 
So as we enter into a time of worship, we're going to worship for a few more songs. The reason why we do this, the reason why we set out a good amount of time to worship after we read the Word of God is actually allowing space to respond. Instead of just, amen, go, go to lunch, it's amen, okay, how did God speak to me? The reason why we have these carpets up here is so that in a posture of surrender during worship, you can come and you can kneel before the Father and just surrender our own stuff and say, God, your ways are better than our ways. The reason why we have this room and when we have space in between the tables and is so that we can spread out. You can stand up. You can, you can be in the front. You can, you can go and pray with someone. You can go ask for prayer with someone else. Like, this time is supposed to be a time where we respond to God for the way in which he spoke to us through his word. And so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to enter in this time of response. Amen? Amen. God, we thank you that you break the rules, quote-unquote, to go after us and heal us. That you love us. That you, you do desire good things for us. But God, we're first to admit that we so easily can get in the way of that. We so easily can just impede your hand of working. And God, we don't want that to happen. And maybe for some of us, we're not even aware that we're doing it. And maybe some of us were like, we're good. But God, would you help us, even those areas where we're, we have blind spots, or we're blinded to the ways in which we doubt you. God, help our unbelief. Encourage our faith this morning. God, help us to not get caught up with like our way is the right way. God, help us to really be surrendered to how you want to do things, Father. God, we pray that you would um, bless this time of worship, this next few songs, that we would respond and commune with you now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.